Hi everyone, this is Yin, and welcome to Growth and Failure. This show highlights extraordinary people that inspire and motivate me to level up. I'll have conversations with a wide range of profiles from entrepreneurs and athletes, investors to educators, you name it. I love hearing people's different journeys. For me, the biggest lessons learned and opportunities to grow come from the struggle, the pain, the defeat. And I hope hearing these stories inspire you to not fear that messy middle or failure, but rather motivates you to reflect, to keep learning, and ultimately to keep growing. For more information, please visit growthandfailure.com for more updates. And please write a review if you can. They really do help other people find this show. Thanks for listening. This is the story of Carla Gray, head of safety and security at Epic Games. In this episode, we discuss Carla's journey from second grade and announcing to her mom that she was going to work in the Secret Service to actually working in the Secret Service as her first job. I don't often meet people who call their professional career at such a young age, but the force is strong with this one. It was an absolute treat to hear Carla's journey in security, and I found it so interesting to hear her comparison of what it was like to work at the White House, and then securing pre-IPO, post-IPO companies like Facebook and Uber, and now at Epic Games. And when done successfully, like she has, how safety and security adds to corporate culture while feeling quite invisible. Please enjoy this interview with the wonderful Carla Gray. Hi, Carla. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Excited to be here. So I'm so excited. You are the head of safety and security at Epic Games, which sounds very exciting. And I can't wait to talk more about that. But first, if you don't mind rewinding your highlight wheel all the way back. And I always love to hear about where people came from, where they grew up in their childhood. So if you don't mind sharing where you grew up. Sure. I grew up in Michigan in a little city called Ypsilanti, which is right outside of Ann Arbor. I am one of five kids. I had two older brothers that I was constantly chasing around and trying to do what they were doing, which meant lots of sports growing up and lots of competition. And I think that directed where I ended up playing a lot of sports through high school and college, being an athlete and being very competitive. That kind of guided me into where I ended up in my career and going forward. Speaking of college, I ask every guest on my show how they chose the college they went to and why, because I'm intrigued by that decision-making process, because it seems like nobody knows at the age of, I don't know, 18 or so, what they want to be when they grow up. So can you share your college story? I told my mom in second grade that I wanted to go into the Secret Service. And thinking back, I don't know 100% why I made that decision. But (laughs) once I decided that in my head, that's what I wanted to do. So I only looked at schools that had criminal justice majors. The other thing that was really important to me coming out of high school was sports. And so finding a place where I could play volleyball was really key as well. And the other thing that I knew about myself was that I wasn't going to be successful at a big school where like you're in a giant auditorium and there's 500 students listening to a lecture or something like I just don't learn well that way. And so I wanted to be in smaller classroom environments. So I started my first two years at a community college, Henry Ford Community College, which is in Dearborn, Michigan. That was the best decision for me. 
I got to play sports. It was easing into the college experience a little bit. I had amazing professors who, at the community college level, oftentimes the professors are people who were practitioners or either were or currently still are practitioners, and they're just teaching on the side. And so that made a big impact on me, realizing that not only did I want to pursue criminal justice, but I wanted to be somebody who had actually experienced it and done it, not just somebody who could talk about it from reading a book. And then I transferred after two years to a school out in Pennsylvania called York College. I knew I wanted to get out of state for my last two years and just have a new experience. And York fit the requirements I was looking at in terms of having a criminal justice program that had an internship. I wanted to do an internship and get that hands-on experience. Having a volleyball team that I felt I could go and fit in with and being kind of a new beginning in terms of nobody there knew me or had formed an opinion about me so I could go and just explore a little bit. And that was scary, but ended up being a really awesome experience as well. Amazing. I love the self-awareness at such an early age. I mean, I'm in my 40s and I still don't have that. So good for you for just knowing everything from the classroom size, the environment, but also the major and focus so early on. So here you are at your college. You graduate with a criminal justice degree. What is your first job out of college? My first job out of college was with the Secret Service. And it was fortunate how that came about. I don't want to downplay like I know I worked hard to get there, but the timing also worked really well for me. So 9-11 happened my sophomore year of college. A year later, they're forming the Department of Homeland Security and doing a lot of funding for all the agencies moved under that, including the Secret Service, which that funding led to a lot of hiring. So I got in at the very end of their hiring wave, moving to DHS and I was 22 when I got hired. I think one of the youngest people in my training class. And I had no idea really what I was getting into to some extent in terms of the training and just what it was going to require. But I knew it was something that I had been aiming for for so long that my thought process was, I at least have to go for it. And if I get down there and go through the training and find out hey, I don't have what it takes. Well, I know. And then I'll figure something else out. But I at least have to go for it and see. So then you were there for it looks like a little over six years or six and a half years. Here you are, your dream job from when you were little working at the Department of Homeland Security. For those who don't know, including myself, what it's like to work in the Secret Service and what does like the onboarding training look like? And what was your experience there like? So I was in the uniform division and most of my time I spent was assigned to the White House. So the uniform division is almost like Secret Service police. So you'll see them in uniform outside of the White House and they're assigned to protecting the president's residence, the vice president's residence. It's a really interesting mixture of doing police work because you're policing all the space in and around the White House and then doing protection, which If you do your job well, and the Secret Service often does their job well, protection is actually very boring because you're controlling every potential variable there is. So if there are surprises, that's probably a bad day. Something's gone wrong. Like It's rare that that happens, though. So, And the training is six months right when you get hired. So three months at the Federal Law Enforcement Training Center down in Georgia, and then another three months at the Secret Service Training Center which is in Maryland. And it involves everything from academic stuff and legal and emergency medicine and shooting and 
control tactics is what they call it, but you know, like hands-on and physical fitness is a big part of it too. You know, I remember getting a syllabus my first or second day and looking at all the different classes and the different tests and thinking, oh man, tomorrow is going to be my last day here. (laughs) I can do all this. But the end of the first day happened and I was still there. And then it was the next day and the next day. And you slowly kind of learn and build your confidence. And in a way, it was good to come into that experience having been an athlete, having been very coachable or like learning how to be coachable, but also being very aware that I had a lot to learn. And I think the people that struggled were came in with more experience and thought, oh, I've done this before. And that's not the attitude the instructors are looking for. There's a very beginner's mindset. And so after an amazing six plus years there, then you switched over to tech. How did that transition happen? probably five and a half years into my time at the Secret Service, I started to think about, I don't know if this is a sustainable career for 25 years. It's very grueling in terms of the schedule and just quality of life. You miss a lot of birthdays and holidays and it can be hard to make plans. And Because you're always on call or? Well, it's a lot of shift work and the schedule revolves around the president and his schedule or what dignitaries are coming to the U.S. So September, for example, the U.N. General Assembly happens in New York and you have 50 foreign dignitaries coming. Well, it's not like we get more people all of a sudden to support all that. So literally the month of September, people are told, don't plan vacations, (laughs) don't plan your wedding, don't plan to take any time off. Everybody's going to be working every day the month of September. Wow. And I just felt I didn't want my job to rule my life. For or at least to take one whole month out of the year away. <laughs> yeah. But I didn't know where I wanted to go from there because that had always been my aim. And so I started thinking about, okay, well, what are other skills I can develop or what are other opportunities that are out there? And the opportunity to go to Facebook really fell into my lap in a very fortuitous way. So one of the guys I went through training, secret service training with was a Harvard grad and had gone to Harvard the same time Mark Zuckerberg was there and he had connections to folks who were working at Facebook. And he ended up at Facebook a few years before me and we had stayed in touch. And then I was doing what we called protective advance work for President Obama. So he did a trip out to California And one of the sites he was going to was an online town hall with Mark Zuckerberg at the Facebook campus. So I was involved working with the Facebook staff on all the logistics of where are employees showing up? What time do they need to be there? What are they going to be allowed to bring in? What's the screening process look like? And the Secret Service side of that is where are we setting up our metal detectors and how many guys do we need and all those logistics. And that was one of multiple sites. It went well, but I didn't really think a lot about it. And then a couple months later... I got a call from a Facebook recruiter saying, hey, we have a job we'd like to talk to you about. So I said, sure, let's talk. (laughs) And I would be lying if I said I had a, a real good sense of what I was getting into. I just knew at the time that I was ready for something different. And this was going to be very different. And I also felt like I had this set of skills I had developed over six and a half years. And the opportunity to apply them in a new environment felt really exciting. Every time I hear the words, a set of skills, my mind goes to Liam Neeson in Taken, where he has a special and unique set of skills, (laughs) but very similar to you. So when you think about your career starting at DHS and 
literally working under Presidents Barack Obama and George W. Bush and thinking about their safety and security and then now transitioning over to tech. So you've worked at Facebook and then you've led Uber and now Epic Games. Can you share the differences of what it's like to work at the Secret Service versus these larger tech companies and maybe the similarities and differences in structuring and designing a safety and security program? Ooh, that's a great question. So the Secret Service has a way that they've been doing things for a very long time that's kind of proven. And it's a machine in a lot of ways. So you're one of hundreds of people that are one little piece in like this big plan that's been established. And you have an important role to play. You can't mess it up. But there's a lot of structure already in place. I think it's very easy for people to understand hey, the president's going to be here. We're going to shut down this road. We're going to do this. We're going to do that. We're going to do all these things that are going to inconvenience you for the sake of safety and security. People get that. When you move into the private sector, none of that machine exists in terms of security. And you're constantly having to weigh, does this security measure that's going to inconvenience people add more value than not having that friction and people just being able to quickly get their job done. Because at the end of the day, our goal is to run the business and make money. That was a pretty big adjustment for me was having to really be able to justify, hey, why are we locking this door? So people can't come in this door. Now they have to walk around. Is there a really good reason? And can you stand in front of the executives and tell them and convince them that this is the right thing to do? And that the disruption of if something goes wrong, that the risk that you're addressing is bigger than the disruption or the inconvenience it's causing the employees. So really learning the business and the company culture and understanding how do you create security measures that align with those things. That's what you're doing in the private sector. What is it like to prepare for security and safety for profiles like the CEO of Uber or Mark Zuckerberg? What is that like? Is that an individual team and task force or is that part of your umbrella? Even being in the Secret Service and doing this for the president, what I would say is these are human beings, just like you and me. They have emotions, they have family, they have a job to do. That's a big job. What you want to do is help them do it safely and feel comfortable and supported. Again, for most people, that's not going to involve 10 bouncers walking in a bubble around them everywhere they go. Like they want to interact. They want to have normalcy as much as they can. And so figuring out what's the risk tolerance, what are activities that are probably fine for them to do? And like, what are other things where it's, okay, you know what, we'd feel more comfortable doing it this way than I don't want to do it that way. Okay, let's talk about it. Let's have a conversation and figure out how do we meet in the middle? Or how do we work towards that over time? Like whenever you're doing personal protection, it's a back and forth. It's a conversation. It's almost like a negotiation to say like, hey, from a security standpoint, we would love it if you stay home and never leave the house. And we can just protect you right here, but that's not realistic. So how do we work together so you can live your life and we can make sure you're staying safe? Can you share, describe the differences in culture and priorities between Facebook and then Uber and then Epic Games in terms of how different they were with their focus on safety and security? I think Facebook and Uber are good comparison points because Facebook, especially when I started, they had a very low risk tolerance. So People wanted more security or they really wanted to feel safe, especially if when folks are traveling. 
I would have some back and forth with people about how we were designing security at the headquarters in terms of which doors you had to swipe your badge on or what those processes looked like. But for the most part, the risk tolerance for the business was a lot lower. When I got to Uber, they're still sprinting to try and launch in as many cities as possible. At the time, I think they were live in maybe 300 cities. So Now you're talking about the next 300 cities are not the safest cities in the world, but that's where we're going. That's where people need transportation and want to move. The level of concern that people had, their sense of, oh, I don't feel safe was totally different. So like much higher risk tolerance, also a way bigger volume of security issues as well, because way broader footprint. So I went from... Facebook, where it felt like you're fine-tuning security, to at Uber, it felt like we just got to get some basics in place as quickly as possible and as many places as possible, do our best to get our arms around it. Does the safety and security program, does that include everything from the rider's comfort and safety in a ride, regardless of what city they are? Or is it physical structures of headquarters? Or what does that mean for something like Uber that is everywhere in hundreds of cities And everything from C-suite executives to riders, or how does that work with Uber? So my mandate at Uber was more focused on employees and our physical locations and our executives. But we also did what we call marketplace security. So if you think about macro level security for an entire city, there's a major incident and Uber needs to respond. And how do we do that? So we were involved more in that, like the crisis response piece. There's a different team that handled what are the policies and the measures and the response that we have for a specific rider and driver interaction. Oh, interesting. And so then fast forward, you worked at Facebook for close to four years. You worked at Uber for close to six years. What had you interested in Epic to be head of their safety and security? You know, both Facebook and Uber were a total journey in terms of standing up something, like building out a program, seeing the company move from pre-IPO to post-IPO, a lot of roller coaster ride loops there, especially at Uber. You were there also for their IPOs, which is amazing. Yeah. And the company changes through that process as it needs to. You know, it grows up, it matures. There's more bureaucracy in a lot of ways. And the part of security that I get really excited about is the opportunity to be creative and figure out what are the risks and the challenges and how can we creatively apply security solutions to keep people safe, help enable them to do their job better. And as a company, I don't know, gets bigger and grows up a little bit, it's harder to bring that creative energy, I think. So I just have decided that I think I fit better at that faster pace moment in a company's trajectory. And so that's what I've looked for. And Epic is everyone there is super creative. Their business is built on being creative and thinking outside of the box and trying to change the way people do things. And so that was a big draw for me. Facebook, I think, is quite well-known globally, same as Uber. For those who don't know Epic, which I'm sure individual games they might know, but can you share more about Epic? Yes. Epic Games is in the entertainment and video game space. And there's two main pieces of the business. So the first is video games, Fortnite being the most famous title, but also Rocket League and Fall Guys fall under that umbrella of video games. And then the second is Unreal Engine, which is a tool used to create video games, but also in television and film and a growing number of other fields. 
Epic is wildly represented in our house with Fortnite, <laughs> for sure with my boys. I think Fortnite is the primary title that folks would be aware of. Yeah. And so you've been there for close to two years now. What has been your experience there like and your role? So I'm leading the global safety and security team. And it's interesting because I started during the pandemic. So a lot of the shift around safety and security is focused on like personal health and safety. And I really think it's shifted for people how they think about their personal safety. COVID made all of us think about that in different ways. There's still obviously a security component, but also really involved in thinking through what our COVID policies are and how we reopen our offices in a thoughtful way and can bring people back together and start doing in-person activities again. That's been a big part as well. I'm so curious when you think about all of your experience, whether it's Secret Service, Facebook, Uber, now Epic, you had mentioned earlier that if there is a surprise, that's a bad day because it's over-preparation and really looking at all the different situations and scenarios that could go wrong and then trying to mitigate that so it never happens. What is the typical day like in the sense of, is it looking at a bunch of data? Is it looking at, I'm thinking of sports and looking at prior reels and saying like how people performed and trying to analyze that and then apply it forward. What does that look like in terms of how to shape it so that you don't get a surprise for the day? By the end of my time at Uber, it was starting to get to that. So we had this goal of being very data-driven I would say right now at Epic, it's more, it's still foundation building. So trying to put the processes in place to collect that data and be able to get that snapshot look of where are the hotspots that we should be aware of, or like, where are there areas where there's potential for a concern that we need to look at? I mean, this is a huge rabbit hole we can go down, but the starting point of what do you even want to measure? And then what are the tools and the systems and the processes you put in place to be able to capture those things and measure them? So my team from Uber, we had these legendary meetings where we were working on a security incident management system. So anytime there's an incident and you're going to take a security report, what goes in there? So just defining like what are the categories of things that we could have in a drop-down menu for a report and is suspicious person the same or different than loitering or just so many the details that you dive into. And we would have these epic battles of people arguing for they wanted this versus that. And does this make sense? And I loved it because that meant people cared and they were passionate about it. But there's a ton of work to do just to even get to that point. So I do think what you're talking about, the money ball side of things, looking at the data and seeing like, or having tools to say, hey, alert, there's a potential for an issue to happen over here. That's a 100% ideal state, but it is incredibly difficult to get there. There's a lot of work that has to be done to get there. I remember reading an article about how Amazon had this issue with their Nest product where they bought Nest and defining what is a security issue, right? So is it a mailman? Is it a lawyer? Is it potential burglary? And how to categorize that for future data tracking? It opened my eyes to how difficult it was because then you're really setting that order in the framework of what may be issues going on. So that's a tougher task than I would think for from a data perspective. But that segues into my question also in safety and security online. So the idea is you're thinking about physical human safety, but how does it work with your role in cybersecurity when a lot of the games and whether it's Facebook or Uber and now Epic, a lot of the potential harm in safety could be online. How do you marry that with cybersecurity threats? You have to work super closely together. And we're seeing the reality is more and more your online presence can lead to physical risk. 
the term you hear a lot in the industry is convergence. There's this convergence of cyber and physical security coming together. Again, like that's not easy to figure out. How do you do that really well? And what are the areas where it makes sense to collaborate super closely? And then what are other areas where maybe it slows you down if you're trying to overly coordinate? So that's a huge work in progress as well. I was really fortunate at Uber and then also at Epic to have super strong partners and teammates in this leading the cyber function to get to kind of explore those things together. But that's a space we're still figuring out, which is the creative side of things that can be really exciting. Does your role also involve looking at data from the perspective of psychologists as well in the sense of, okay, if you're building and designing a building and their main headquarters, for example, and you're seeing where normal pedestrians and maybe C-suite go, do you look at both the human psychology of what generally people would do in the event of threats? How does that work with the idea of being super creative and not just doing safety and security in a generic way, but thinking ahead and including more data that might be non-traditional? First one, like working with psychologists and stuff like that. Some of that we've done when it's doing threat assessment work in the past. So somebody who's shown an inappropriate interest, for example, against a executive or sending weird mail or something like there might be a time where we would work with somebody to say, okay, help us understand like how concerned should we be here, that type of thing. And then we started to do this a lot at Uber. I think it's really important to be able to pull in data sources outside of just security and create business metrics out of your security data. So that was like something we really worked on was how do we not just use our data to inform our security posture, but how do we use it to ensure that we're aligning with and enabling the business with all the security measures we're putting in place. That's definitely more of an art than a science, figuring that out and understanding where are there metrics that are meaningful or where are the data sources that when you put these two together, it starts to like really tell an interesting story. But that's the stuff I love that I think is really cool. And it takes a lot of work and the right partners to figure out. But when you do, it's a what I would say is somewhat of a cutting edge area of safety and security. It's incredible for me to think that I have a first and a fourth grader, but the idea is that around this age, they could come up with a passion and decide to pursue it full time. And so it's just really exciting to think about. You literally have created the role that you wanted when you were seven or eight or you know something like that. Is there anything that comes to mind or maybe surprising to listeners who are so intrigued by your role in terms of surprising that they don't know about safety and security, the concept of your role, whether it's at the tech company or Secret Service and DHS, but anything that your average listener would be surprised about with safety and security? I don't know if this will answer the question, but what comes to mind when I hear you ask that is one of the questions I would always get when people heard I was Secret Service or I have a security background is like, oh, do you carry a gun or have you ever shot anybody? which the answer is no, I've never shot anyone. But I don't think of security work as being like this big muscular person who's scaring people away. I think of security as being really prepared, as thinking through contingencies and having plans in place, and then making sure everybody knows what those plans are so they feel prepared as well. We'll be going to an event and we think through, okay, well, what if the power goes out? What are we going to do? How does the building respond? And what do we need to know? Do we have flashlights? You know, what if there's a medical emergency? What's the nearest hospital that we're just thinking through all this stuff so someone else doesn't have to? We can take that burden off. And then if there is an issue, it goes really smoothly. That's us doing our job really well. In the same ways, if there are potential security risks, we're worried about 
someone breaking in. Let's put measures in place to prevent that. But you don't have to be a ninja or some muscular gun enthusiast or something to be working in the security field. In fact, I think what makes teams really good is people from all these different backgrounds and perspectives coming together to problem solve, think through security problems in a really cross-functional and holistic way. Can you share a surprise that you had at your job, any of the companies, but a surprise and how the security and safety team learned from that and adapted that lesson? One of my early surprises, it was not long after I started at Facebook that the company announced they wanted to go public and do the IPO. But in doing that, they had a bunch of confidential company meetings they were doing. And we didn't have a physical space at the time. There was so much construction happening. We didn't have a physical space that would hold all the employees. So they decided to set up a giant tent outside to hold confidential company meeting right next to a public walking trail. But they're like, Carla's confidential. No one can hear what we're talking about. I'm like, but you're outside next to a public walking trail. So, okay, how are we going to solve this problem? So we ended up getting some landscapers who have leaf blowers and a boombox or something. And if it looked like there were reporters walking along, they'd turn on their leaf blower so that the noise would be canceled out and we could do the meeting. It was midday. It ended up being fine. But the idea that that mindset shift of, hey, it's our job to make this happen. How are we going to make this happen? And then maybe a year later, we had another confidential meeting. And at this point, it was in the outdoor courtyard. The company had So it was for employees only, but you have a lot of people who aren't employees on campus. So how are we filtering people in? So we figure out a plan, we execute. I felt really good, like we made it happen. And then the CSO came to me and said, that was great, but it just looked like there were way too many security around. The vibe that it gave the event wasn't that great. I'm like, I felt like I just pulled a rabbit out of a hat. Now it's still not good enough, but I love that looking back. I always want to make be better. We can always do it better. And it's true. It's something I've really learned is that the security team and your security posture does impact the company culture. And it impacts how welcome people feel on your campus, how safe people feel, how comfortable they are being there to get their work done. And so understanding that's a really important role to play. And I take that super seriously. And it's part of what I'm proud of in terms of getting the job done really well. I feel like I could ask you hours and hours and hours of your day and your job just because it's so interesting to me. And one of those, not that it's a thankless job, but it's a secret job. If you do it well, no one sees it or hears it or is impacted by it, except for to your point, culturally, we feel safer without the visual feeling of being protected. So it's a really tough thing to do invisibly. (laughs) Doing it well means not front and center for people or it's not top of mind for them. If feeling safe isn't top of mind, then you're probably doing a good job. One last question, and then I'll pivot to the questions I ask everybody. With security issues, not issues, but security maybe failures that have happened around the world. And so I'm thinking more recently about former Prime Minister Abe and how he's assassinated. Do things like that impact your role in terms of, okay, new event happened, let's analyze that and see how to prevent that going forward when you're really, it's rare when it happens, but gosh, that was a moment that doesn't happen very often with a senior leader of the world. Do you then apply that in terms of your updates with security? If you're not paying attention to events that are happening in the world and just looking out at the horizon, you're going to be caught flat-footed, which is the last thing you want in a security role. I think there's two aspects to that. There's 
understanding, yeah, like what are the new risks or tactics that are out there that potentially we need plans to be prepared for? But then also like what are the shifts that are just happening in the political realm and the economy and how could those impact our business, our people? And it's part of my job to keep an eye on that and to flag that when I see something that could be a risk or concern and make sure we're prepared. I hope that we have many more times to chat about it because I just think your role is so, so neat. Well, so I'll pivot that because I'll save the listeners three, four, five hours of all the questions I could ask you about your role. But I'll start with the typical questions I ask folks, starting with who or what inspires you? I have a lot of thoughts on that or like ways I could answer that. Definitely my family inspires me. I feel really lucky to be close to my parents and my siblings and like physically close to them now since I've moved back to Michigan and nieces and nephews. I just get a lot of energy from being around them and wanting to keep them safe too. is like part of what I do. We kind of talked about this before, but I have a passion for keeping people safe, but doing it in ways that are creative and feel good and work well within their life and within like their goals, whether personal or business. I don't think security has to feel like a pain or a blocker. And so figuring out ways to make it feel fun and an enabler and like something that you can get energy from, that excites me. And that's what I love to do every day. You had mentioned that you are one of five kids and that your brothers had a big role in your life. But did you have a mentor or role model, whether in the security space or not? But did you have a mentor or role model either growing up or through your professional career? I think I've had several. There are so many people who have had impact on both my personal and professional life. And I think my college coaches are a big one. Being tough enough, being ready to handle things. Uh, Definitely had a few folks in the Secret Service who gave really good advice or helped guide. And there's a lot to learn in terms of navigating that agency. And especially at Uber, I had some really great support there, like coaches and leaders that I worked with who... I mean, that was not an easy environment at times. It was grueling and it was stressful and like figuring out how to navigate that or just having people you could lean on and talk to was huge. Looking back, I still have really great friends that I met at Facebook who our professional careers have taken us in different directions, but they're such great sounding boards. When I'm feeling stuck on something, being able to lean on them and talk has been amazing. If I were to describe your career and all the things you've done from leading the physical security operations at Facebook and serving at the Secret Service under Presidents Barack Obama and George W. Bush, and then also thinking about the IPOs you've done, the mega campus workplace openings. There's so much that you've done professionally. Is there something you're most proud of, either professionally or personally so far? There have been some really cool moments, fly on the wall, getting to experience in history, you know, at the White House, the Facebook and the Uber IPO were proud moments. But right now, the thing I feel most proud about, especially looking back, the team that I built at Uber, we were over 80 people at one point, just the group that we brought together and the work that we accomplished there in such a crazy environment. I tell them that we're like the Uber family tree now. A lot of them have left and gone on to different things. But I learned a lot about leading people while I was there. And I 
think it's so important to just first genuinely care about them as humans. And I still, to this day, care about them and they care about each other. And so that team atmosphere that we built and that I feel like has sustained across a lot of them, even after, I would say, I think that's one of the things I'm most proud of. Well, one thing we haven't heard yet or discussed is the name of the show or incorporating the name of the show, including failure. And I'm sure with your job, there's so much struggle or adversity or potential failures that could happen. But I'm curious if you could share one or two of the most impactful failures that you've had. And I'm assuming as such growth. So whether it's the growth and enhancement of security programs or even personally, but I would love to hear one of the most impactful failures. And it could be either work-related or personal. The first thing that comes to mind at Uber, we would always talk about not being afraid of failure, but making sure we fail fast. So the idea was Uber was doing something that no business had ever done before. So we're trying to support from a security perspective in a totally new way. We're not going to get it right the first time. We're just not. And maybe in some aspects we will, or we can do our best, but we're going to have to recognize that it's okay to not get it right. And when we don't get it right, let's admit it and then fix it. And I struggled a lot early on because the company was growing so fast. I felt like my job changed every six months. Six months, you're starting to like feel like, okay, I'm in a groove. I know what to expect. I know how to get things done really effectively. <laughs> and then there would be some giant curveball or we'd add five people to the team and they're doing what I was doing before, which is great. But now I'm like, wait, what am I supposed to be working on? Like, what am I even doing? And so then it's like this grind that you go through of how do I have an impact? Am I still valuable to the organization? Like, where should I be focusing my time and effort? So that was hard. And I learned a lot during that time. One, I learned, yes, you're adding value to the organization, even if it's not always tactically checking boxes. And you got to pick your head up if you're going to lead people and be looking at them, like thinking bigger picture and farther down the line and setting vision for them. And I think one of the things I've learned more recently too was in my time in the Secret Service. And then I would even say somewhat at Facebook and really at Uber, like my job was a lot of my identity and it was very personal to me. And I was super, super invested, which is good. But I think at times, if you're overly invested in work and that's your primary focus, that anytime you have a conflict or there's a roadblock or something doesn't go well, it feels personal. And then your first reaction is very emotional and not always productive. I think I've found a place of more balance now where when there is a roadblock at work, I can say, okay, we have a glitch. Like, let's sit down and figure this out. But it doesn't have to be personal. It doesn't have to be super emotional. And I can actually be a lot more objective and therefore have a lot more productive conversations on like, okay, how do we solve this? I need more of that. If you have any tips for that and getting there, that would be highly appreciated. What does success mean for you? That's changed over time. Right now, success is having balance, feeling healthy, being a contributor, not just at work, but like in my family and in my relationships and with my friends. I think those are the ways I would define success today. Love it. Last question. What's next for Carla Gray? You know, I don't know yet. I'm enjoying what I'm doing now. And there's still a lot to do. I'm excited to keep working on that and building. I want to continue to contribute at some level to this field of security and what that looks like in the next decade or something. I have no idea, but I'm excited to figure it out. 
Well, you've had almost 20 years in this space, and it's an impressive background in terms of literally starting at Secret Service and in the Department of Homeland Security to spending over a decade in tech and some of the largest tech companies in designing that. So I imagine that anything that tops that is probably outer space and securing <laughs> Mars and, and other things in the moon and whatnot. But I'm excited to track your career going forward. Carla, thank you so much. I had a blast in this interview. Thank you. It's been great. Thank you.